Hey, grab your Bibles. Uh, this is the highlight of the time together is being in God's Word together. And we are in 1 Peter. We're making our way through this incredible book together. I've uh, been in here for a while, and we're going to stay in it for, for a little bit longer. But uh, open there, if you would, 1 Peter chapter 3. Your Bibles should, should start, if you've been, been around for a little while, they should start to just naturally open uh, now to 1 Peter. Some of you have been here this whole time and still can't find 1 Peter in your Bible, but uh, a little ribbon might help down, down your Bible right there. 1 Peter chapter 3, last week, last two weeks, we talked about the home and the role of the husband in the home, the role of the wife in the home. It was not an exhaustive uh, uh, teaching on the topic, but nonetheless, it was uh, about submission in the home and husbands uh, as well living in an understanding way to their wives. This morning, I want to talk about this, attractive attitudes of every believer, attractive attitudes of every believer, and be looking at verses 8 to 12, actually just verse 8 this morning, but the section goes from verse 8 to 12. Let me ask you this question. What is the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen? Maybe for you, it's the sunset. You just love to look over the sunset in the Pacific uh, and see the sunset. Maybe for you, you're, you're a sunrise person. You just think sunrise is just beautiful. Some of you teenagers are like, I've never seen a sunrise. What, what would that even consist of? Maybe it's children laughing. You just love the sound of little babies giggling. You just think that's so beautiful. Maybe it's music. You just love music and the sounds of, of harmonies and melodies and, and instruments coming together. It's just a beautiful sound. Maybe it's the perfect play action pass to the wide receiver cutting across the middle. You just think that's just, just beautiful, just, just a work of art. Some of you are like, I don't even know what play action means. Maybe it's a fireplace in the wintertime with a book and a blanket and a cup of coffee. Maybe it's an animal or certain animals. You just think that they're, they're just beautiful to look at. Maybe it's the, the Grand Canyon and just standing over, over the edge and looking out over the Grand Canyon for those of you who have seen that. Maybe you're, you're, you think beauty is in castles and in, in older architecture. Maybe beauty to you is just simply Disneyland at night. Just Main Street, just looking down Disneyland, the sights and smells. Guys, if you did not think of your wife uh, when I asked that question, uh, then you need to go back to the tape last week uh, on husbands and uh, listen again. But what makes something attractive or what makes something beautiful are the features that it gives off, the colors that it gives off, the majesty that it gives off, the, the art, the setting, the smells. Each of these beautiful images give off an impression to those who look at it. And the same is true for every believer. Every believer is giving off an impression of what Christianity is. Every believer is telling the world, by the way you act, by the way you respond, by the way you talk, what, the, what Christian is, or, or what Christ is, or who Christ is, and what Christianity is. And you are either attracting people to the gospel or you are repelling people from Jesus Christ. There is no middle ground. 
If you look with me, actually, in 1 Peter chapter 2 to, to understand the context before we even get to chapter 3 and verse 8, in 1 Peter chapter 2 in verse 12, there is this, this, uh, this kind of uh, turning of the corner here from Peter's writing in this letter to, to verse 12 where he starts to get practical and he makes this statement, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they see, speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When it says there in verse 12, that first sentence, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, that word there, that Greek word there means beautiful. It means excellent. It means beautiful to look at. It means excellent in its nature and characteristics. It means that it's genuine and it's approved. Meaning this, Christian, keep your life beautiful to those who look at it. Keep it attractive to those who look at it. Keep it honorable. Keep it genuine and approved. And remember this, Peter isn't writing to, to these Christians here who just are, are living high off the hog right now and just enjoying life like everything's going wonderful. And of course, it's, it's easy to keep your life beautiful when things are going well. He's not writing to, to those Christians. In this setting, this letter was written to those who were persecuted for their faith. This letter was written to people who, who didn't know if they were going to wake up the next morning and be persecuted by Emperor Nero. He didn't know if the next day when they wake up, their, their friends are going to get dragged out of their home and, and lit on fire. These Christians were under the heavy threat of Emperor Nero and persecuted for their faith, standing out for their faith. And Peter encourages them, keep your conduct still in the midst of persecution, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficulty. Keep it attractive to look at. Keep it beautiful. You're telling the world about who Christ is through your life. The first place he goes then after saying, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable or beautiful so they may, may uh, see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The first place he goes to is submission. The first attribute of an attractive Christian is that they're submissive. Your submission to authority shows your humility. Your submission to authority is countercultural. Your submission to the government, your submission to an unruly boss as he goes down the line, your submission in, in, in the family unit is the first sign of somebody who has emptied themselves of pride and says, I can submit to authority. They're able to say, I can submit underneath the Lord, or as it says in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human, human institution. They can submit to that because they ultimately submit to God. This was even illustrated in verse 22 of chapter 2 where, where it says here that he committed no sin, neither was, was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ lived in submission to the Father. And we live in submission to live in uh, this society. We live in submission to one another. We live in submission to the, to, to the governing authorities. We're not, we don't just break off and start our own little culture, our own little clan, and, and never live in harmony with what, what the rest of the world has to offer. No, we still live in submission to them while still remaining beautiful in character. And so submission separates us. 
And he goes on, he talks about wives living differently than, than, than otherwise that are subject uh, to their own husbands, even if they do not obey the word. He talks about husbands in verse 7, living with their wives in an understanding way. All of this is going to draw attention to your life, which will then draw attention to Christ. But then he says this, verse 8. He says this, finally, all of you. He pulls everybody together for one final statement, uh, summing up this entire section here on what it means to keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. He pulls everybody in. He grabs them essentially by the shirt collar, makes sure he has everybody's attention, and he says, this is attractive Christianity. This is how, this is the behavior, these are the attitudes that you're to have if you're going to make an impression on the world. If you're going to make Christ attractive in your life, these are the non-negotiable attitudes that you must have. He pulls everybody in. And the reality is this, church, you are leaving some sort of impression of what Christianity is to those around you. Husbands, you are leaving an impression on who Christ is in your life by how you treat your wife. Wives, you are leaving an impression on your husbands as to what it means to be a Christian. We are leaving an impression on our relatives, we are leaving an impression on our neighbors, we are leaving an impression on the, 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 the clerk at the grocery store, or I guess now you say uh, the DoorDash guy. You're leaving an impression on the person you sit next to in a plane. While you sit there, you in some way are making a mark, whether for the gospel or against the gospel. We're all making our mark. The question is, what kind of mark are we making? What kind of mark are you leaving? What are people seeing in your life? Do they look at your life and say, wow, that looks like an attractive life. I want that. And all you do is reflect the glory of God in your life. All you do is reflect who Christ is in your life. And you point them to Christ and say, it's just Christ within me. It's no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives within me. Or do people look at your life and, they, and you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and yeah, I go to church, and yeah, I do all these things, but they look at your life and say, is that really what a Christian is? Is that really how a Christian spawns? Is that really how a Christian is supposed to behave? Because if that's what a Christian is, then I don't want anything to do with that. And Peter is saying this, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering, still keep your conduct among the Gentiles attractive. And so what he does in verse 8 then is he gives us a list of attractive attitudes of every believer. Every believer. I want to give those to you. Let's read it first. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. 
For whoever desires to love life and see good deeds, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking to see. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The first attractive attitude of every believer is this, is that they have unity of mind. They're in harmony with other believers, unified to other believers. It means this, or more literally, it's all like-minded, having common interests with one another that are around the gospel, unified around the essentials of life like God and salvation and, and Christian virtue. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 16, it says it like this, very simply, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. In fact, this was so important to us that Jesus, in the prayer, in the high priestly prayer, in John chapter 17, prays that we would all be unified. And I want you to see this. Turn over to John chapter 17, because there's a di very distinct reason why we're supposed to be unified. John chapter 17. Jesus says this in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, talking about just the disciples there, but also for those who will believe in me, talking about every believer, those who will believe in me through the word, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the word, uh, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why is unity so important? Why? Because it says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them that they may, what? Be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me. Here's that, so that, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. It is so important to Christ that he, he even tells us, I am unified with God the Father. I am unified with the Spirit. We, we are all one in the same manner. You be one with one another. Be unified with one another so that they would believe in Jesus Christ. Unity is so important. In fact, it was so important to the Apostle Paul, if you, if you turned over to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2 was so important to the Apostle Paul that, that he said this in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same Mind. Here's the Apostle Paul planting churches, strengthening churches, and he says, This is what brings me joy when you are unified in harmony with one another. Like a beautiful choir singing in perfect harmony, different parts, different sections. 
And I have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to the choir, but I know it sounds really, really good. And I know everybody has a part, and when it comes together and it blends perfectly, even the untrained ear can go, wow, that is beautiful. When each part is doing their own thing and singing their own way, and you're going, what in the world is going on up there? I want nothing to do. I don't want to listen to that anymore. But in perfect harmony, we lean in. And this is exactly what Peter is saying. Be unified. Live in unity and harmony with one another. Spurgeon says, be unanimous. Be united with the resolve that you will glorify God and that there be no dissension and no division among you. Be all of one mind. I mean, think of this practically, church. Just imagine walking into a a men's study, maybe it's in the morning or on a Saturday, or, or, or maybe it's a ladies' study, a women's Bible study, or even, even walking into church on Sunday, and you walk in, and on all you hear is people bickering and complaining, divisive, talking about the music not being what they like, or wanting it to be something else, or oddly enough, the carpet that we just put in. Why'd they choose this color? I would have done something different. Where there's only discord that is happening and people walk into that, and you know what they're going to do? They're going to turn around and walk back out. Because they want nothing to do with that Christianity. I don't want anything to do with people who all they do is complain and bicker and there's divisive people. What's attractive is when we are in unity and harmony around the gospel. When people hear our conversations that are filtered through the love of Jesus Christ and there's warmth, people want that and they say, I want to be a part of that. What, what in the world is that anyway? I don't even know. I don't even understand that. Divisiveness is so destructive to the church. More than that, it, it, it totally marks the, the glory of God, and it stains the glory of God. And people are repulsed by that. But what makes the church so beautiful, what makes our lives so beautiful, is that we, we all come from different backgrounds. We come uh, with different experiences. We have different likes, and we have different preferences. We have different personalities. Praise the Lord for that, because if we all look the same, man, that would be so boring. I mean, we don't all want to be the same person. We don't all want to have the same likes. By the grace of God, we've got different gifts and abilities. But when we come into church, we put aside those preferences and we say, what is it in this church that I can do for the glory of God? We put those to the side. And we just say, hey, I'm here for the glory of God. I'm going to bring those in and I'm going to say, hey, this is for the glory of God. This isn't about me. I want to be unified. Ask yourself, when I come into church, when I'm with other believers, when I'm even with unbelievers, am I someone that brings unity to conversations? Am I somebody that just disrupts conversations? Am I singing my part in the choir? Am I doing my own thing? So Peter tells us, first of all, have unity of mind. Secondly is this, the second attractive attitude of all believers is this, is sympathy. Sympathy. 
And you say, well, all the guys are like, wait a minute here. Sympathy, no, no, no. Like I'm the rough, tough kind of cowboy guy. I usually got a hat on, but not in church. I got the boots on. I'm the tough guy. Sympathy isn't part of who I am. In fact, I'm not even sure if I, I need to be sympathetic. Well, the Bible tells you otherwise. And sympathy is simply a feeling for a capacity for sharing in the interests of another. The sympathetic individual has a tender concern for others. When one person hurts, we all hurt with that person. And when when one person rejoices, we all have joy for that person. We show sympathy. Rejoicing with individuals and families, neighbors, coworkers, rejoicing in their accomplishments. And feeling sad when they are sad. Carrying the burden with them, as it talks about in in Galatians, about, about lining up and carrying a burden with them. All that is surrounded with this word sympathy, where we show that to one another. Romans 12, 15 says it as simply as this. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Kenneth West, uh, talking about this this Greek word here, sympathy, says this, the primary meaning refers to a fellow feeling. A fellow feeling. We don't call each other fellows anymore, but it's a fellow feeling. With a brother Christian, either in his joys or in his sorrows, it takes as much grace sometimes to rejoice with another saint in the way God has blessed him as it does to sympathize with someone who is in his sadness. What a miserable thing this petty jealousy is among the saints. I want to show you something here. It's very important. Everybody needs to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. This is where you pull out your pen, your highlighter, if you're in precepts Bible study, your collection of colored pencils, and you get ready to underline because this is what you need to understand about our Lord and Savior in Hebrews Chapter 4, verse 14, it says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Making it very clear who it is. It says, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What is he saying here? He's saying this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize in our weaknesses. Meaning this, we have a savior, Jesus Christ, who sympathizes with us who feels what we feel. He has a, as Kenneth West would say, a fellow feeling of sadness when we are sad. Christ rejoices when we rejoice. 
We don't serve a king. We don't, we don't serve a high priest. We don't, we don't serve a, 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 the Lord of lords as someone who cannot understand anything that we're going through. Who would want to serve someone like that? Who would give their life to somebody like that? Someone that shows no sympathy, somebody who has no understanding, but, but we do not serve a high priest who cannot sympathize in our weaknesses. Jesus Christ sympathizes with every feeling that we go through and our deepest hurt, our deepest pain, our deepest trials. He feels it. He understands it. He sympathizes with those who are hurting. He sympathizes with those who are rejoicing. In every respect, he's been tempted as we are. And out of this sympathy and this feeling that he has for us in the midst of the hardships and and in the midst of, of the good things that are happening in our life, what does he say for us to do? Let us approach Jesus Christ with confidence. Because it's there at the throne room that he will give us the grace and mercy that we need. What's it based out of? His sympathy. That he feels what we feel. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, he says this, the reason that Jesus is in such close solidarity with us is that the difficult path we are on is not unique to us. He has journeyed on it himself. It is not only that Jesus can relieve us from our troubles like a doctor prescribing medicine. It is also that before any relief comes, he is with us in our troubles like a doctor who has endured the same disease. What he's saying is this. He's not saying, hey, pray to me and I'll just dish out a pill for your pain. I have no idea what the pain is like, but I'm just going to dish out a pill for you for you to take. No, he's saying this. I fully understand what you're going through. Now come to me and drink of the grace and mercy as I sympathize with you. John Owen says this, Christ is inclined from his own heart and his own affection to give us help and relief, and he is inwardly moved. He is inwardly moved during our sufferings and trials with a sense of fellow feeling of them. Christ is inwardly moved. Let me ask you the question, church. Are you inwardly moved when someone else is hurting? Are you inwardly moved when someone else is rejoicing? That's what sympathy is. This is what makes Christ so attractive. And listen, this is what's going to make your life attractive to the watching world is when you are warm, when you sympathize, you're displaying who Christ is in your life. Listen, that's counter the culture. That is the opposite. The culture is like, just get up, get going. What's your problem? Or better yet, let's just give you a handout to help you out. That's not Christ-like. Christ-like is showing sympathy, coming alongside them and carrying the burden with them. Warm, open, 
This is the attractive attitude of every believer. Then number three is this, going back to 1 Peter. It is this, not only to have a unity of mind as Christ had a unity of mind, not only to have sympathy as Christ had sympathy, but third is this, is brotherly love. Brotherly love, and you can see this kind of sandwiched between sympathy and, in my translation, says a tender heart or compassion. There, sandwiched in between this is love. This word there for love is where we get the word for Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This is a, a love of the brethren. It's a human affection and fondness for one another as brother Christians. It used to be a thing where everybody would walk up and say, hey, brother, 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 brother. You know, it's like, brother, brother. What's your name again? Yeah, brother. I don't know your name, so I'm going to call you brother. That's the name. This love for one another, affection, fondness for one another, because you're in the family of God. One writer says it like this, says, don't view each other as strangers or as mere acquaintances or as distant relatives. View each other as close family, for after all, we now all possess the same father. Family can have some pretty serious squabbles and exchanges and some very harsh words. Mutual love is one of the strongest arguments for the Christian faith. Mutual love is one of the strongest arguments for the Christian faith. And in Romans 12, 10, it just says to let your love be genuine. In John 15, verse 14 and 15, this is what Jesus said, that you will know that you are my disciples by your love. And again, Christ asks us to do something that's counter what the cultural says. I love what F.B. Meyer says. He says this, Do we love the brethren, not always liking them perhaps, but treating them kindly and making their interests more important than our own? We love people we don't like, maybe in that moment. Not necessarily like the likes that they have, and we may not like their personality. We may not like how they handle situation, but we have a, a genuine love that says, I will sacrifice for you, even though we may not necessarily enjoy one another. And we make those interests, their interests, more important than our own interests. And this separates you then out of the world and into this group of believers that then becomes attractive for the world to see. The world sees that you forgive. The world sees that you look over offenses. The world sees that you have a sincere infection, affection for one another. And this is a beautiful sign that, that not only are you saved, but now you are attracting people to Christ through your life. Number four is this, compassion. Fourth attractive attitude of every believer is this, compassionate. If you have the ESV, it says a tender heart, a moldable heart. Some versions may say this, kind-hearted. If you really just pull it back down to what this word means, it, it means kindness. This simply means be kind. 
The word here in the Greek then even goes farther in saying this, that it reflects then a deep feeling within the bowels or, or the stomach or a gnawing of inner pain to empathy for someone's need. You see a need and it just, it just turns you on the inside with kindness that you, you have to respond You see this in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 32, it says, it says this, Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So this is the very attribute and the very, the very heart of God is his kindness. And in fact, the apostle Paul even said is that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse, verse 12, Paul, Paul says it again that, that we're to, to put on tenderness, to put on compassion, to put on kindness. We, we clothe ourselves every day with a desire to show kindness to others. We put it on. We dress ourselves in it. We allow our hearts to be tender towards one another. Even in the midst of hardship and suffering, this is very difficult to do. J.H. Jowett says this, tenderness, it carries, that carries one a step further than compassion. Tenderness is more than correspondence. It is gentle ministry. It includes the service of the tender hand. It not only feels the pains of others, it touches the wound with exquisite delicacy. The Lord will add a gentle hand to our compassion. He will take away all the roughness, all the spiritual clumsiness, so that in the very ministry of compassion, we, not, we may not break the bruised reed. And so we show compassion a tender heart, compassion towards one another. Spurgeon says it like this. He says, the Christian should be the highest type of gentleman, the highest type of gentleman. In every respect, the most gentle man, kind, self-forgetful, seeking the comfort and well-being of others to the utmost of his power. Reminds me of this, and I want you to turn there. Turn to Luke chapter 10, if I can give an illustration here. I think Jesus gives the best illustration of compassion in Luke chapter 10. It is the parable of the Good Samaritan. But listen to it through the lens of the world being attracted to Christ through your life. Verse 29, Luke 10, 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus... And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by a chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levi, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, underline it, he had compassion. 
He went to him, he bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Genuine compassion. Verse 36, when, which of these then do you think, which of these, you got three options here. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who had showed him mercy. And then what does Jesus say at the end? Jesus said to him, what? You go and do likewise. A tender heart showing compassion to those in need. Those who don't deserve it, this is what attracts people to Jesus Christ because you're acting like Christ. You're living like Christ. You're obeying Christ. We've got to take self-inventory of our own hearts to see where we land on having a tender heart. Simple kindness. We have in our, in our kitchen, we have a sign. All it says is this, be kind. I mean, we've got to keep it simple. We've got three boys and a, and a daughter. It's just simple. It's be kind. Just start your day. I'm just going to be kind. When you're kind, you're like Christ. Fifth attitude is this. Lastly, and we'll end with this, number five. A humble mind. You want to have an attractive attitude that is Christ-like? You want to bring people to the Lord? You want to show them Christ in your life? You want to leave a right impression? Then this, you must be humble. And humility is this. It's honestly, as one writer says, honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So it's saying, God, you're holy. We see you're holy. We see your majesty. And then we see our sinfulness. And we humble ourselves in light of your holiness. And we have a right assessment of our heart. A proud person says that I am who I am. I am above everyone else. I look down on everybody else. I find myself above looking down. That's the proud person. The humble person is contrite, low in spirit, looking up at God the Father and serving him and everyone around him. So this is what it says in Philippians. Chapter 2 and verse 3, it says it very clearly. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And then it goes on to say, but with humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourself. Let each of you look not at his own interests, but also the interests of others. Listen to this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. So your mind of humility is the same mind of Christ humility. You're acting like Christ in your humility. So we do nothing from selfishness, nothing from empty conceit. We're reminded what the Proverbs say about pride. We're reminded that God hates pride. Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance. I hate it. Evil speech and perverse speech. Proverbs 16.5, the Lord detests 
all the proud of heart be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18, 12, before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Isaiah 57, 15, for this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite. God is saying, I live with those who are contrite and lowly in spirit to receive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. And Peter even says it in his own letter in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a battle, right? We're battling our own pride every day. It would do us good if each day we woke up and said, okay, the number one battle that I have today is me and my pride. The number one battle I have today actually lies within my own heart. And we do battle against that. We fight our pride. We humble ourselves before the Lord. We look out to the interests of others. And so Peter says this. You want the world to be attracted to Christ through you? You want others to be attracted to Christ through your life, through your attitudes, through your behaviors? This is... The list. You say, oh, I need to make some changes. I got some work to do. Yes, we all have got work to do here. We all do. I need to be more in harmony with other believers. I need to be more sympathetic. I need to be more compassionate. I, I need to show more love. I need to have a tender heart. I need, need to have a humble mind. Yes, all those things. But I want you to recognize this before we just separate the morality from the gospel. What Peter is doing is simply describing Jesus Christ. That's all that Peter's doing. We looked at a verse for every single one of these that pointed back to Christ. What is Peter ultimately doing? He's ultimately telling you to be like Christ. And if you're like Christ, people are going to be attracted to you. Have unity as Christ had unity with the Father. Have sympathy as Christ, our high priest, has sympathy with us. Show brotherly love as Christ has showed us brotherly love. Have a tender heart and compassion as Christ was compassionate to those he was around. And humble yourself as Christ has humbled himself. All we're doing, church, is acting like Christ. And it's through the lens then of Christ, it's through the lens of the gospel that then we practice these things and we pray for people and we live for Christ in the hopes that he will draw them to himself through our lives. Because it's no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives within me. And so we pursue these things not because we want to be more moral, have better ethics. We pursue these things because this is who our Savior is. This is who Christ is because the gospel's on the line. And we make ourselves as attractive as possible to all those around us. 
And this is how we make a difference in our communities. Let me close with just this simple illustration here. I'm just going to read it. I found this kind of interesting. British and American computer scientists. British and American computer scientists have created artwork that changes according to how the viewer feels. So you're looking at this artwork, and the artwork's analyzing you. The computer program analyzes the position and shape of the mouth, the angle of the brows, the openness of the eyes, and five other facial features to determine the viewer's emotional state. The artwork then alters based on the viewer's mood. If joy is seen on the face, the artwork will show up in bright colors. If there's a scowl, the image will become dark and somber. It goes on to say this, our moods or attitudes can affect the people around us, our family, our friends, our coworkers, and acquaintances. Our life touches people, whether for good or bad. Each person is responsible for his or her own actions to us, of course, yet the way we behave makes a difference in others' lives. The way we behave makes a difference in others' lives. Like I said from the start, you are either attracting people to Christ through your life or you are pushing them away with your life. We're all leaving a mark and we're all leaving an impression. The, the question is, is what kind of impression are you leaving? What kind of mark are you leaving on those around you, on those who love you, on those who are most important to you, on those who you see just in passing, on those you have interaction with on the road, on those that you have interaction with at the mall, those you have interaction with in the cubicle, to those you have interaction with in a Zoom meeting? i got to come up with all these new things because it's just, you're leaving a mark. And so we keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder. Lord, we're so thankful that you're not asking us to do something that you haven't done. You walked the earth and you were of one mind with God the Father. You walked the earth and you had sympathy and show sympathy and you walked the earth and you loved those who irritated you. You had a tender heart towards other people. These, these things, you had humility, so much humility to even go to the cross for us. Lord, you walked this path. You've done these things. This was uh, uh, the attitude that you had here on earth. And now through the word of God, through the writing of Peter, you've asked us to reflect these same attributes in our life. And in doing so, we become more like you. We become more like Christ, our Savior, And the light of our life becomes brighter, not because of our goodness, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is within me. And so, Lord, may we desire 
to live in unity. May we desire to have tenderness. May we desire to have sympathy and love and, and humility. May we desire those things for the sake of the gospel. May, be, may people be attracted to you through us. What a privilege that would be, Lord, that you would use us to attract people to you. And we need your help in these things. And so we ask for that. In Jesus' name, amen.